to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly analysis podcast updating you on the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week, we're going to be talking about updates on the situation in the United States, the unexpected success of a right-wing Romanian party, and a See You in Hell segment dealing with fascism in Brazil. In the United States, as in previous weeks, The ongoing news is around the extreme right's efforts to get the 2020 election results overturned, uh, specifically in order to have Donald Trump remain president, and for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris not enter the White House in January. These are, of course, going to be unsuccessful. It appears it will be the case, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, But legally, all of Trump's results have failed so far. This has not stopped the, quote, stop the steal rallies uh, that have enveloped several major cities in the United States from continuing, although they continue to be getting smaller. However, as somebody who pays attention to the right wing, that doesn't mean that they're going to go away or even that they'll become less intense or influential. This might drive some of their participants to become more violent and more brash in what they're trying to do in order to achieve their goals. One example of this possible increase in intensity comes from the Republican Party in Arizona, which retweeted a tweet that suggested that people should be willing to die in order to stop Joe Biden from being the president. Now, okay, yeah, this is just a retweet, but in the context of the extremely armed protests that characterize the Stop the Steal movement uh, and just Donald Trump's extreme right supporters in general, This can't be just seen as like, oh, you know, it's an offhand or whatever, you know, they retweeted something. On that note, of course, also this week, a fascist supporter of Donald Trump shot somebody in Olympia, Washington uh, during a Stop the Steal protest. Um, The victim was grazed by the bullet and is not in serious danger of life or limb, uh, and the suspect has been charged and could face decades in prison. But this is a clear reminder that, like, when actual official organs of the Republican Party talk about using violence for political ends, there are people in the Republican Party who are listening to that and don't think of it as just like a hyperbolic suggestion or rhetoric. There are people who are actually going to be committing violence. And that violence will not be just committed against their fellow citizens, uh, as in this altercation between protester and counter-protester. Uh, there was also this week a rally of armed protesters around the Michigan Secretary of State's home, uh, her personal residence, demanding that she initiate a full forensic recount of that state's presidential election results. Now, the state of Michigan has already formally decided its results. It is over. The election is over. There really isn't that much that can be going on at this point. The Electoral College, in fact, meets very, very soon, um, at which point it'll be like, really truly over but the point is that these people have weapons they are willing to use them they have used them in the past and we must expect that they will use them in the future the next story that i'm going to be talking about is the surprise success of an extreme right-wing party in romania Uh, the party's translated name is the alliance for romanian unity uh, and they are abbreviated as AUR, which in Romanian, as in most Romance languages, is a reference to gold. Um, the Alliance for Romanian Unity won 9% of the vote in an election uh, with historically low turnout. Uh, less than one third of eligible Romanian voters 
cast ballots in this election. Overall, the election results were actually relatively okay. The socialists are in government and the conservatives are out. But the success, and like truly cannot emphasize enough, the amazing surprise success of this party is a real dark cloud over that silver lining. This is in part because this party formed only last year. AUR is an incredibly young party, literally came like actually out of nowhere in order to have seats in government. They are an extreme right-wing party with close ties to the Orthodox Church in Romania, uh, which is an incredibly socially conservative force in that part of the world. They are pro-life and anti-LGBTQ. They are anti-EU. And they're probably the most surprising and weird thing, at least from an outside observer, is that they are a revanchist party uh, that seeks the reunification of Romania and Moldova, which would create a massive Romania, a a very large state um, just southwest of Ukraine. Revanchism, if you haven't heard of it before, is a type of political ideology typically associated with the right wing and often with the extreme right that focuses on the recreation of a former nation's territory. Uh, so, So they're either focused on regaining territory that their nation was always supposed to have, uh, or the recreation of a formerly existing state, uh, often, you know, a monarchy that existed in the 19th century or something like that. Uh, revanchism is one of the ways that you could describe the Ku Klux Klan ideologically. You know, they seek to return to the antebellum South. Uh, that They want to return to the way things used to be. Uh, and, and not just in a, like, the way life used to be, but in a territorial sense. Revanchism was also a major part of the ideologies that led to the development of the Italian fascist party. Um, there was a very famous uh, armed insurrection and invasion of a city that was historically Italian, but which was uh, then located in Croatia after World War I. Uh, I'll talk about that when the relevant person's death date uh, appears uh, sometime in early next year. Anyway, so they're a contemporary revanchist party. They're anti-EU, they're pro-life, they're anti-LGBTQ, they're, they're, you know, they're really a terrible party. They were successful disproportionately uh, among members of the Romanian diaspora, like many citizens of relatively less economically well-off countries in the European Union. Romanian citizens have been traveling to um, other countries in Europe in order to get work. This is... This should not be a surprise to anybody in the world. This is how economies work everywhere. And those Romanians in those other countries are othered, are distinguished from their societies that they're currently living in. And they are resentful that their country's economy doesn't work in such a way that they would be allowed to remain at home as they might very well have wished to have done uh, in order to have the work that they need in order to support themselves and their families. I say these things as a reminder that the people who vote for these right-wing parties, many of them are motivated by really disgusting ideologies. Some of them are outwardly racist. Some of them are outwardly sexist. Some of them are anti-queer in violent and truly terrible ways. Other people support parties like this for, well, for relatively economic reasons. Uh, And this is where things get complicated. And this is the heart of the right-wing claim that Nazism and fascism in general is a left-wing ideology. This is complete nonsense. But the idea here is that it is true that fascists talk to members of the working class, they talk to members of the middle class, they talk to small business people, 
And they say, hey, the economy isn't working for you. Capitalism isn't working for you. Uh, the big businessmen, the big business leaders, they don't care about you. They're not you. The difference is that unlike socialists on the left who say, and therefore you should form an alliance with workers all over the world or with um, any person who is facing oppression in the face of capitalism, the patriarchy, um, colonialism, all sorts of other oppressive systems. Instead, fascism says that you should seek your compatriots among your, well, your compatriots, the, the people who are members of your nation, uh, and that that should form the basis of any lasting political system and, and any lasting political loyalty. To return for a moment to the prospects for AUR in Romania, there's some of this that we just won't know until we see how they operate in government. Remember, this is an extremely new party. There's there's sort of all bets are off when it comes to what they're going to be like when they're actually in government. There are some in Romania who say that they're nothing more than a Russian front, you know, like like exactly the same sort of things that people said about Donald Trump in his election in 2016, you know, that it had to have been a fluke. It couldn't possibly be real. For those of us who have been observing the movements surrounding Donald Trump and uh, who pay attention to the rise of the radical right in this time in history in the 21st century, uh, unfortunately, it's more likely that this is just people in Romania believing monstrous things and some of them being beguiled by an ideology that sounds like it might be in their interests at the expense of people who they should, in a better world with a better ideology, be working with. All right, now I'm going to return to our only recurring segment here on 15 Minutes of Fascism, a segment I call See You in Hell. Uh, See You in Hell commemorates the death date of fascists and other right-wing figures who died this week in history. This week I'm going to be focusing on Plinio Salgado, the founder of the Brazilian Integralist Action the largest and most successful classically fascist party in Brazilian history. Salgado was born in 1895. Wow. Uh, the son of a small-time local politician in the south of Brazil. He was a journalist by training and wrote for various newspapers throughout his 20s, uh, turned to religion and an increasingly conservative ideology after the death of his first wife following her giving birth to their first child. He then spent the remainder of the 1920s founding and being a part of various nationalist movements uh, into the late 1920s while continuing his job as a journalist and as a writer, even a writer of fiction. As Brazil entered the 1930s, like many other countries, there was a period of major political turmoil uh, as the Great Depression rocked the world's economy, as fascism and other ideologies were rising throughout the world, uh, Salgado goes to Italy uh, and becomes enamored with fascism. Uh, for those of you who have listened to previous episodes of people like Oswald Mosley or Ezra Pound who go to Italy and have the same experience, this should not be a surprise. This is something that happened to a lot of people in the 1930s. Fascism was, was very exciting. It was even sexy. It was something new. When Salgado returns to Brazil, he forms alongside him a a group of like-minded thinkers and organizers um, and journalists and founds this new party, the Brazilian Integralist Action Party, in 1932. The Integralist Party is often just called the Integralist Party, uh, 
Os Integralistas. My, my Portuguese is quite bad. My apologies. So the Integralists are named after, in part, um, a particular valence of Catholic ideology, of Catholic theology that is extremely conservative, um, that's very socially conservative, that's um, critical of capitalism in a sort of like medievalist corporatist type way. Uh, the Integralists used the Greek letter Sigma as their insignia. They were a deeply Catholic nationalist party. Uh, they were nationalists, but not explicitly racially coded, uh, except for anti-Semitism, although Salgado himself was not quite so virulently open of an anti-Semite, even for his time, even, even for the 1930s. The Integralists had local black leaders, um, which was a relatively interesting thing for a conservative and especially for an extremely right-wing party in Brazil to have had at the time, although, of course, their national leadership was massively, overwhelmingly white, especially with respect to the actual racial makeup of Brazil. The Integralists were a male supremacist party. They were extremely militant. You know, they they, they had an armed paramilitary wing. They were anti-left. In, in short, they were your standard fascist party. They just happened to be located in Brazil as opposed to Europe. At first, the Integralists were skeptical of and then supportive of Getulio Vargas' seizure of power in the late 1930s. Now, this is a story for another day if I end up talking about Getulio Vargas himself. Um, what this was was a political coup that established the Estado Novo, which was a dictatorial system in Brazil that ruled Brazil throughout the uh, late 30s into 1945. So Salgado at first is skeptical and then supports Vargas's seizure of power. Um, but then uh, as Vargas is securing power, he realizes, well, he doesn't need these guys. Uh, he doesn't need these fascists around. They're, they're, they're just a different power holding group that he needs to juggle. Why, why not get rid of them? Again, if you've been paying attention to this podcast in the past, this will not be a surprising narrative to you. This is something that happens a lot. Fascists are used by conservatives in order to establish their power, and the conservatives give them the boot when they don't need them anymore. That's exactly what happened to Salgado. Uh, he was exiled to Portugal, uh, which was also under a similarly hyper-conservative, quasi-fascist uh, leadership, which was also called the Estado Novo. Uh, so he was exiled to Portugal for integralist coup activity. It's debatable about whether he himself was involved in any of these coup attempts, but that's sort of beside the point. Uh, he only gets to return to Brazil uh, in 1945 when the war is over, uh, when Vargas is you know out of power now. He returns to politics as a deputy, as a member of the Brazilian Congress, um, and stays in politics basically relatively effectively until shortly before his death. Uh, he also played a small role in supporting the 1964 coup, uh, which installed Brazil's uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s dictatorship, um, which lasted an extremely long time, but in terms of death toll was uh, relatively moderate compared to its compatriots in Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. In any case, what this means is that Salgado sort of made it, you know, he, he wasn't able to actually found a successful uh, fascist party. Uh, the other parties that he founded were relatively milquetoast and didn't really go anywhere. He stayed in politics, but wasn't that successful and was able to die effectively of old age, uh, heart problems at 80 years old in Sao Paulo this week in history, December 9th, 
1975. So, Daniel Salgado, we'll see you in hell. Now, I'd be remiss not to note, especially when talking about an important figure on the right wing in Latin American history, that this week also includes the death date of Augusto Pinochet, the famed and infamous dictator of Chile from 1973, uh, clear into the late 80s. Pinochet is not quite a fascist. He ruled a military dictatorship that had some civilian support, but it wasn't led by a mass political movement. Um, Pinochetistas were organized, but they were also forbidden from forming political parties for a large part of the dictatorship. It's a complicated case, and you know maybe it's an Maybe it's a semantics thing, but the point is that Pinochet also died this week in history, uh, December 10th, uh, effectively of heart failure. So, Pinochet, uh, we'll see you in hell too. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. I'm thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our graphics intro and outro, and I will talk to you next week. Next week.